Well, good to be with you all this morning. Um, my name is Jeff, and I do serve here as associate pastor, and uh, always enjoy having the privilege uh, to be up here uh, proclaiming God's Word. God's Word is good, speaks of His goodness, speaks of His might and His power and His great love for us, and uh, we have the privilege now of, of delighting in these things together. So allow me to pray one more time, and we will uh, dive in. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for all that we've already been able to do this morning, hearing uh, uh, how you're working through Amnion. We're so thankful uh, for that uh, ministry and, and what we heard and uh, the reminder of, of your love uh, for uh, your people that we have seen through singing and, and seen through the, the chance to, to confess our sins and our faith together this morning. And we pray now uh, that you would help us uh, to receive from you, to receive from your word. Uh, please help me and help all of us uh, to be shaped according to your word uh, today by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as many of you are no doubt aware, uh, it is college decision season, and it's a, a very exciting time uh, for people. In fact, congratulations to the students and parents of the students who made their big decision uh, recently. Uh, and I've noticed over the last few weeks that this process has a lot more hype uh, than it used to have, I think, when I decided which college I was going to. Schools now have uh, signing days. I saw videos this week uh, on Facebook of kids at high schools. They're all, like, unveiling their college shirts and stuff like this, and there's a lot of production around it. Uh, in a way, I guess this makes sense because everything that you read tells you that colleges, especially the colleges known as kind of the top-tier uh, institutions, are becoming more and more competitive. And that's why I was so surprised when I read about a young man named Craig McFarland. Craig McFarland is from Florida, and he graduated from high school a couple years ago. He's in college now. Uh, and like many high school students, he applied to a bunch of colleges. Now, unlike most high school students, he applied to every single Ivy League college. And unlike every other high school student in the country, he received admission to every single Ivy League college. Now, you might be a young person here, and you might think, you know, maybe, maybe I'd like to, to do that too. Maybe that's a good goal to shoot for. And I say, as someone who won't be paying your application fees, go for it. Sounds good. Although you might want to hear about McFarland's resume before you take the plunge. So what did this Craig McFarland do that merited him entry to all these schools? Well, not much. He just took double the number of required classes at his prestigious and academically rigorous high school. Uh, he was a national merit finalist. He took 20 AP exams. He was the president of multiple clubs. He was on the track and field team. And sometimes when practice ended, he would leave track and field practice to go hang out with the marathon club and run on the beach. And you know, in his free time, he really likes languages, so he learned seven of them. Well, with all that schoolwork, he must be pretty dull socially, right? No, he was voted homecoming prince by his classmates. And that's all well and good, but he probably came from a, from a life of, of ease and, and, and privilege, right? Well, wrong again. He was raised by a single mother. He moved 12 times. He was mistreated uh, by some of his classmates because of his ethnic background, and he had to work to pay for many of the classes that he took. So you look at an achievement like gaining admittance to all eight Ivy League schools, and you think, who could ever be worthy of this? 
Well, the answer was Craig McFarland, for one. It's an almost impossible standard to measure up to, and most of us hear his story, and if you're like me, you probably have a sense of your own shortcomings in comparison. Well, if you've been with us uh, at Meadowcroft here recently, you know that we just last week finished up in the Gospel of John. And in about six weeks, we're going to start a new series in the book of James. Now, that series is going to occur while Max is on sabbatical this summer, and we're going to have Stan Gale, who many of you know, he's going to take the lead on that series, and I'll preach a couple sermons uh, from James as well. But before we get to James, we wanted to stop like we do every year, usually during the summer, and spend some time in the book of Psalms. Why? Well, the book of Psalms is one of the most important books in the Bible, certainly the longest, but it's not the kind of book we're ever just going to straight up like preach our way through. And so every year, uh, we try to spend about five or six weeks in this book because it is so good and it is so valuable. And today's psalm, Psalm 24, is no exception. In Psalm 24, we hear the story of a king, a king who creates, a king who is holy, and a king who is victorious, a king who is not like anyone else, a king who is worthy. And each of these aspects shape what it means for us to worship him and follow him. This is a psalm like so many other psalms that both confronts us and also comforts us. Confrontation and comfort, like so many of the psalms. And we see that starting with verses 1 and 2, which say, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The psalmist begins by claiming that the earth be belongs to the Lord, and the language used here is quite expansive. We see here that God isn't just the God of Israel, or just the God of a certain region, or just the God of a certain group of people. He is the God of everyone and everything. Everything belongs to the Lord, not just people, the psalm says, but the fullness thereof, animals, plants, all created things. He owns it all. And this is really a pretty bold claim right off the bat. This isn't how most people thought about the world back then. It's certainly not how most people think about the world today. So back then, uh, the idea of a universal God who owned everything was in sharp contrast with, with the general idea that most people had, that there were different gods who belonged to different people and areas. And these gods uh, were in an ongoing struggle and, and like in this ongoing conflict for supremacy. But Psalm 24 says, no, that, that's, that's not true. The Lord of Israel is the Lord of all. And this would have been important to Israel because Israel was often being pressured to kind of hedge their bets by coming under the influence of other so-called gods that were out there. Because these other so-called gods promised success in very important areas like agriculture and childbearing and many other areas. And it was tempting for God's people to give some allegiance to them. And that's something that the Bible calls idolatry. And Psalm 24 is very clear that this is vain and fruitless and empty. And Psalm 24, and even in verse 1, also challenged God's people to believe not only that he was the only true God who owned everything, but also, by implication, if God is the Lord of everything, then not one area of Israel's life was shut off from his authority. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. God's people were given instructions, not simply how to worship him, but also how to treat other people, even how to treat their animals, how to treat their land, 
how to structure their weeks and their years and so many other things. The Lord was the Lord of all of their lives. And this is one of the ways that, that Psalm 24, I think, confronts us. When we acknowledge that God owns everything, and then we understand that this includes us and all of the things and stuff that we think of as our own. And beyond thinking of our stuff as our own, there is so much that I think is part and parcel of our culture that pushes us towards the idea that we are our own, that we belong to ourselves. I read a book last year by a Christian thinker named Alan Noble, and the title of the book was You Are Not Your Own. And in it, he says that the idea that we are our own is the fundamental lie of modernity, of our modern era. And this assumption, I think, shows up everywhere, and, and of course, none of us are immune to it. But the Bible confronts us here with the idea that, no, actually, we are not our own. We belong to someone else. And this has implications for all of our lives, how we work, how we speak, how we structure our time, what we do with money, and so on. And we'll keep thinking about that as the psalm unfolds. But for now, we just have to acknowledge that if this psalm is true, then the Lord's claim upon us and his entire creation is comprehensive and far-reaching. But for now, I think we simply need to pause and let this psalm do its work because the natural question is, if the Lord owns it all, on what basis does he make that claim? I remember when our kids were younger, and once I took a couple of the older kids, our two oldest daughters, before Brian was born, I took them away for a fun weekend. And Susie, who was our youngest at the time, she was a little too young to come along, so she stayed at home with Catherine. And after a few hours, she began to realize that her sisters were gone. And so Susie decided to take advantage of the situation. And she started walking around the house and pointing at things that she had previously shared with her sisters. And with each thing that she pointed at, she would say, this is mine. This is mine. And she went all over the house, claiming ownership over all that she surveyed. But of course, those claims did not carry a lot of weight. Needless to say, they were not acknowledged by her sisters upon their return. Anyone can say they own something, but, but where's the backup? Where, is there anything behind this claim? And that's why the second verse to Psalm 24 is so crucial. The verse starts with for, ex explaining the claim in verse 1. Why does the earth belong to the Lord? For or because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now to our modern ears, that, that might sound like an odd way of explaining it, but, but the psalm here is actually describing how God created the earth. The argument is that God is the one who created the earth, and that's why his expressed ownership of all of the earth and everything that's in it is valid and true. We mentioned earlier that there were other so-called gods competing for the allegiance and the affection of the Israelites. And it's so interesting how the Old Testament in general and the Psalms even in particular undercut the claims of these so-called gods. See, that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. There were a lot of other ancient creation myths and many of them involved one god kind of defeating another god in order to gain supremacy. And many of these creation myths involved water. Because the idea back then was that the waters represented this kind of uncontrolled chaos, right? And then a so-called god would, would come along and subdue that chaos. And if someone could subdue those, those chaotic and raging waters, then their claim of ownership had some validity. 
And there's actually a, a hint of truth to that narrative because one of the ways that God shows himself to be the true God is in his control of the water. It goes all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis, showing that God rules over the waters by separating the land from the water. No one else is able to do that. Later in the Bible, there are several other places where God orders the seemingly out-of-control waters this way or that way in order to save his people. You think of the flood in the day of Noah. You think of the parting of the Red Sea in the day of Moses, the parting of the Jordan River in the day of Joshua, and so on. And so how do we know that God owns the world? Because he created it. In fact, he formed the land, the psalm tells us, right on top of the waters, doing it in such a way to show that there is no one and no thing as great as him. So if God has founded and owns and rules the whole world, then this raises some questions. And we see some very particular questions in our next section, which is verses 3 to 4. And that reads, "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord?' And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So we see that question asked in verse 3. Who is it that shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And these questions, I think, are relevant in in many ways. And, And first we need to consider how they would have been relevant to ancient Israel as they were the original audience for this psalm. They were the ones that would have sung these words together so long ago. And they would sing these words together on, on many occasions, but one situation where these words would be especially relevant was when they would approach the temple of the Lord ascending up to Jerusalem, a city built on a hill, in order to worship him. And they recognized on their way that, that given who God is, it was not a light thing for them to come before him in worship. And so coming before such an awesome God caused some appropriate self-evaluation. So the question is, who shall ascend? Who shall stand before the Lord? And the answer to this question is framed both positively and negatively. Positively, the one who shall ascend the hill of the Lord is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now that works itself out, I think, in many ways. But generally speaking, we see here there's an external dimension and an internal dimension to this type of of person. The clean hands refer to deeds, things that are done. And the pure heart refers to what is true, not just externally, but deep inside the person. It's a life of integrity, a life of wholeness, a life that Jesus himself describes in another place in the Bible involving a hill, and there's a lot of them, the Sermon on the Mount. Among other things, in that sermon, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Psalm 24 reminds us that God calls us to a life of wholeness, not just to a life of like looking good on the outside. And this is why the negative framing of what this looks like I think is so helpful. The person who approaches the Lord is the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And that, that's a phrase I think that is so important for, for us to stop and, and think about because it really gets to what is behind, I think, everything else here. What does it mean to lift up our soul? One person put it as offering the deepest commitment of the whole self to something. And so once again, this psalm, I think, is confronting us, confronting our loyalties, confronting our desires. And this is clarified when the psalmist says that we are not to lift up our soul to what is false. Now, another translation for false here is emptiness. 
We are not to lift up our souls to the emptiness. And I think reading the psalm in this way is helpful because it shows not just the wrongness of giving our devotion to someone or something besides God. It also shows how truly pointless it is. And it shows how our desires, our loves are deeply foundational and just connected to our entire lives. One of my favorite artists, Jenny Lewis, and one of my favorite songs of hers, she sings, you are what you love and not what loves you back. She didn't know it probably when when she sang it, but she was reflecting a rich Christian, I think biblical tradition of understanding that we are very much driven by our desires and by our loves. And that so many of our sins and so many of our problems stem from desires that are disordered of lifting up our souls, not to the Lord, but to the emptiness. We said earlier that one of the great lies in our day and age is that we are our own and that we belong to ourselves. And that story is in the air that we breathe. It it shapes and it bends our, our desires and our lives. And just like every other false story out there, ultimately it is empty and fruitless. You know, if we belong to ourselves, what happens is we end up turning inwards on ourselves and we shrink back from things that are good. We shrink back from deep generosity with our money because we have to be comfortable and we have to be self-sufficient, so we believe. We shrink back from deep community because we have to look out for ourselves, not others. We run towards things like consumerism because, you know, if we belong to ourselves, then we need to make sure that we have just the right products and clothes and gadgets so that people will think well of us. And if we belong to ourselves, it doesn't really matter how we treat others, especially the vulnerable, as we heard about earlier in our Amnion presentation. As we heard earlier, it is so important for us to care for those who are so vulnerable. And the psalm points this out by calling out those who swear deceitfully, how we feel about God and how understanding that God, that we do not belong to ourselves, keeps us from treating others in this way. And in all these things, because we are avoiding or denying the truth that everything, including our lives, belongs to God, we are tempted to lift our souls to the emptiness. And it's sinful because it denies the God of creation. And it's also sad because it's so beneath us as those who have been made in the image of God. And especially for those of us that, as Christians, we have come to see his love and his care for us. And we begin to see in verses 5 and 6 that there is something so much better for us to desire. It says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We see here the great delight and great benefit there is in turning away from the emptiness, turning away from what is false, and turning towards what is true and good. In turning away from the emptiness and turning towards the Lord, we receive blessing and we receive righteousness. We also see here, as verse 6 makes clear, that there is both an, an individual and a corporate or group dimension to turning to God in this way. We move here from focus on just one person to an entire generation of those who seek after the Lord. This is something we do together. Now remember that the original context of this psalm is that God's people were being continually drawn towards lifting their souls, giving their loyalties to other so-called gods that promised blessing. So-called gods that promised that the crops would grow, 
that the land would be fertile, that the offspring would be given, that victory would be given in battle, and so much more. And the psalm reminds God's people that no blessing does not come from any of those other so-called gods, but only from the Lord. If they are going to prosper, it is going to be because of the kindness of the Lord. And because our desires are so often incorrect or disordered, it also means that the blessing of the Lord may very well look different than what we think blessing should look like. Only God knows what we need, and only God can give us what we need. And this is one of the tragedies that's there in lifting our souls to the emptiness. That everything that we are looking for, and even what we are not looking for, but would be looking for if we knew better, can only be given to us by God. When we lift our souls towards the emptiness, towards whatever idols we might be drawn to, the idols ask for more and more allegiance and more and more sacrifice. And in return, they give back less and less. Raising our souls to the emptiness is sinful, tragic, and it's ultimately exhausting. One writer, Christina Edmondson, said the difference between an idol and God is that God defends you and you defend your idols. And this is part of what we see when the psalm says that those who follow the Lord will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. What the psalm is getting at here, it seems, is that God is is vindicating the person and the people who follow him. For Israel, this meant that even as the nations around them followed other so-called gods, and even though it seemed like they they were prospering more than, than Israel, that God actually gets the last say, and that in following him, they would be ultimately vindicated. And see, this is still true today, and it's still connected to the idea that God owns it all. If we belong to ourselves, then we need to vindicate ourselves. We need to declare and show ourselves to be righteous. We need to win the debate. We need to signal to everyone that we're on the right team, whether it's in simple conversation or on social media. We need to align ourselves with the right squad, the right people, the right candidates, the right news channel, the right websites. We need the world to know that we are enough and that our decisions and choices are good and right. And look, that is exhausting and it's empty and it keeps us from loving the truth and it keeps us from loving God, and it keeps us from loving people. Self-vindication is impossible, fruitless, and brutal. It's so much better, as our psalm says, to be vindicated by the God of our salvation. And when we get through verse 6, we've had the chance to ask, I think, some hard and good questions of ourselves. We've been humbled, and we've seen the goodness of what it means to be blessed by the Lord, but the psalm continues And it continues, I think, in a surprising way, showing us who it is that is ultimately worthy of entering in. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You know, I think a lot of times when you read a psalm, the progression of the psalm can seem really clear, right? But the first few times I read Psalm 24, I really struggled to understand how verses 7 to 10 
or connected to the rest of the passage. And I'm not alone in that because the beginning of the psalm seems to point us to, to a man, a person, who would be the one to ascend the hill of the Lord and be granted to come in. But this section seems to paint a different picture. The psalmist says, lift up your heads, O gates, referring, it seems, to the gates of the temple. And the idea of lifting up the head, it's connected with joy and, and with hope. Something good, something remarkable is happening here in this verse. Now, I remember the first summer after I turned 16 years old. That's always a, usually a good summer, right? Because it's the first summer that you have your driver's license. <laughs> and that was also the summer that the Philadelphia Phillies, who have had approximately five good seasons out of 140 years of existence, or so it seems, been a rough year already so far. Well, that year they surprised everyone, and they ran away with the division on their way to a World Series. We won't talk about what happened in the World Series. But in the meantime, we were just so surprised, and we were all so happy. And because me and my friends could drive, we ended up spending a huge chunk of our summer at Phillies games. And we loved it so much, and it was a little bit sad that when it came time for them to finally clinch the division, it actually happened in another city, so we couldn't be there. And I was kind of bummed out about that, but then I'll never forget, my friend called me. He said, hey, I just heard on the radio, the Phillies are about to land at the airport in like an hour. Let's drive to the airport and welcome them back. I was like, great. <laughs> and it was so cool. At least it was cool. To, it's not that cool now that I say it out loud, but it was cool to me at the time. Just getting there to the airport, there we were, thousands of Phillies fans just waiting for our victorious heroes to come home, and the plane landed, and the Phillies arrived, and they had a microphone set up, and there was this whole explosion of joy as we cheered for each player as they got off the plane. I don't think that's happening this year, but there's a much greater victorious return happening in this psalm, because who is coming back in this psalm? The king of glory is coming in. And who is this king of glory? Who is the one worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord? Who is the one who has kept clean hands and a pure heart? Is it King David? Is it King Solomon? Is it some other person? No, the king of glory is the Lord. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The ultimate answer as to who is worthy is that the Lord himself is worthy. He is the one who is mighty and victorious. As we said earlier, this was seen in creation, but it was also seen repeatedly by God's people. So many times Israel was in a desperate situation and God again and again would deliver them and he would be victorious. In fact, one thing that, that would happen when Israel would, would fight is that the Ark of the Covenant, the, the symbol of God's presence with the people of Israel, would go out with them into battle. And this psalm kind of envisions the presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, returning, in a sense, to the temple after a great victory. And just as fans will, you know, chant the name of a player or a team over and over, just as a crowd at a concert will chant encore over and over again, verses 7 and 8 are basically repeated again with a little bit of a tweak to, to emphasize how great this event is. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. But even as, as the crowd here exalts in the arrival of the Lord, I, I think there's still some unresolved tension because, again, earlier in the psalm, it seemed like we were talking about a man, a person, who was going to be worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. And now the answer to who this could be is the Lord. 
As Psalms scholar Jim Hamilton put it, perhaps the resolution of the riddle would await the birth of the babe in Bethlehem. See, the riddle of Psalm 24 is indeed answered in Jesus. Jesus, fully man, fully God. Jesus, the the human who completely kept his hands clean and a completely pure heart. Ultimately, this psalm is about him. You know, we considered earlier different scenarios when Israel may have sung this psalm, when approaching Jerusalem, when returning from battle. But it's also interesting to consider this psalm in the life of the Christian church because this psalm has typically been associated with the Christian celebration of the ascension of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And the Bible tells us that after Jesus was resurrected, he spent some time with his disciples, which Max spoke about over the last couple Sundays from the Gospel of John. And it's not detailed in the Gospel of John, but in the book of Luke and also the book of Acts, the actual ascension of Jesus is described. This is the time when Jesus returned to heaven after completing his earthly work. So after coming to this earth, being born in a low condition, taking on human flesh, living a very human life full of both joy and very much sorrow, beset by temptation but completely free from sin, willingly going to a Roman cross and dying and remaining dead, and look, he was really and truly dead for three days. And now finally, going home to heaven, to his Father. I mean, can you imagine the reception that awaited him when he returned? We often think about it from the perspective of Luke and Acts, as we should, but he returned to heaven. And what a moment that must have been. We said earlier that Psalm 24 both confronts us and comforts us. We are confronted with the fact that the earth and its fullness belong to the Lord and that we indeed are not our own. We are confronted with the fact that we often do not have clean hands and a pure heart. These truths confront and challenge us. And I mentioned earlier that book that I read by Alan Noble, and the title was You Are Not Your, you Are not your Own. See, the title of this book was not simply a critique of the modern world. It was a reference to one of the most wonderful question and answers ever composed, question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that question, some of you may have heard it, reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer reads, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And it closes with, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, when we see that the hill of the Lord has been ascended and that the King of glory has gone before us and that we belong to him when we trust in Christ, we begin to see his goodness and beauty. And not only that, we begin to see how empty it is to lift up our souls to anyone and anything else. We see how false and empty it is to to live as if we belong to ourselves and that it is actually good news that we are not our own. 
when we see Jesus in this way, He begins to restore our desires and restore our loves. He begins to make us new. He begins and will someday complete the work of giving us clean hands and a pure heart because He loves us. And even as we were not there in heaven on the day when Jesus returned from His earthly mission, and all we can do is imagine it, those who belong to Jesus really will be there and really will experience His full and final victory. In the scriptural account of the ascension of Jesus, the disciples see Jesus ascend and they're standing there looking into the skies after Jesus departs. And then the disciples are asked by two men in white robes, why are they staring at the sky? And the men tell the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now we were not there to witness Jesus' return to heaven, but we will be there to witness his return to earth as our forever strong and mighty and good King of glory who loves us and gave himself for us. As we imagine the songs that we will sing on that day, we live now knowing that the race to prove ourselves worthy is over, knowing that lifting our souls to him in life and worship is what we are made for, knowing that we belong to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word and how your word so often both confronts us and and comforts us who belong to you. And Lord, we thank you for the great truths of Psalm 24, and we thank you that even though at times it can feel like it's a good thing for us to belong to ourselves, that there is great news that we do not belong to ourselves, but that we belong to you. We thank you for creating us, and we especially thank you for pursuing us and beginning your work of redemption, Lord. And we thank you so much for Jesus. We're so thankful that he came to this earth. We're so thankful that he lived his entire life with with clean hands and a pure heart. And we're so thankful that because of him, we have so much to look forward to, including welcoming him back someday, Lord. We look forward to that day. And even now, as we worship and as we sing, We pray that you would grow our hope and our faith and our trust as we wait for that wonderful day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.